live and on lockdown. Are you ready? Ready, ready? Broadcasting from Edinburgh, Scotland and across the globe. Listen here. You're listening to Ramsey Unleashed, going beyond borders podcast. The host, Fraser Ramsey. Hey, this is Afia Letham, creator of the Frame Your Day app, helping you walk out every day in victory. I'm proud to be a sponsor of Ramsey Unleash, going beyond borders. Hi, this is Zakia Ringold from NaturalSoapByZakia.com, proud sponsors of the Ramsey Unleashed, going beyond borders podcast. So there's another edition of Ramsey Unleashed, going beyond borders, my guest, and hello to people in the chat. We are using a platform called Haps.tv. It's a video chat, but more based in using it for the audio, for the podcast, and uh, just to say to everybody who will be watching us, I'm my guest, and we're going to find out and talk about her story. Uh, she has a very, very challenging story, and uh, we're going to hear it. It's going to be very challenging. I love inspiring people. I love educating people through people's testimonies, and we're going to simply just do this uh so welcome to my guest <laughs> i'm uh, <laughs> i think my i'm not my brain's not i don't know where my brain is at the moment but apologies so to my guest so even though i had this wonderful chat with my guest on saturday um i don't know what's going on but anyway i think it's good to have some motivation during this tough time we're all going through and to feel get real the fire and to inspire people and go forward so uh, right, I'm going to get to it. Welcome, Book Berry, to the Ramsey Unleashed Going Beyond Borders podcast. I think I've just got, totally butchered my own podcast in the beginning of it, but hey, uh, you do get the odd weird days. But uh, thank you for joining me on my podcast. And um, yeah, how are you doing? How's your day? How's your day? Your more morning gone? Yes. Hi, Fraser. Thanks for having me. It is 1.08 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I am in California and no worries. I know you were busy because you were in the zone. Yeah, you know, when you're just in the zone, I was in the zone and I was being very productive and proactive today because of the radio station I do. I was adding new music. I was just promoting the shows that were coming on today and I was yeah, so I was kind of in the zone, and you just kind of, and I was sitting there, and I was doing something, and I thought, oh, five minutes too, <laughs> oh dear, almost forgot. Welcome to people who are talking, who are in the chat, we are going to be concentrating on the interview, and uh, so we appreciate you watching, uh, and I know, so the we'll main thing is to, it's about, all about my guests, so welcome Ukberry to, so let's tell us a bit about you, it's, I usually do a sort of beginning, middle, end, but I mix it up a bit. To find out about who you are, but let's talk about what is it you do now? What who what is it you do now? What's your day job? What's it kind of keeps you ticking over? Well, I am a professional graphic designer. I have a master's degree in graphic design, and um, I was you know I went to college over here in Southern California, and. You know, I I eat, breathe, and live graphic design. I love every aspect of it, from doing something small like a business card, all the way up to uh, trailer wraps, uh, billboards. Um, I've done a lot of artwork for. Um, it's one client of mine has a a food concession stand over at the Denver Broncos Invesco Field, so I've done a lot of um, work over there, uh, which is kind of cool even though I don't know anything about football. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but I know, a, but I know a graphic designer, and, and I, just, I just love it. I can't um, – I'm just kind of 
giddy that I actually have found a career that I love. And so when I work, it's just fun. And then to have to be paid to have fun is pretty incredible. How many of us can say that? Exactly. How many years have you been doing that job? What's your, what's your business name as well? Well, my business name is private because I am kind of a private person. Um, I just don't know um, who is listening on the other end. And, uh, right. you know, those of us who have been on social media, uh, we know that there's a, there's a lot of trolls and a lot of uh, haters out there. And I try not to put my personal information out there in, you know, in regards to uh, my real name, my address, uh, my clientele right. and stuff like that. How do so you I, get business? How do you sort of get, I'm guessing Ookberry's uh, kind of persona, I'm guessing for online, right? Okay. Yes. That's cool. That's understandable. So I'm guessing, obviously, you, your so, other, your real name and persona, you you basically, yeah, advertise and. Uh, well, and- I've actually been very, very fortunate. I I've owned my own company for over oh over twenty years, and I've been mm-hmm. in this industry for about twenty eight right. years, and I have never had the need to advertise. So I consider myself extremely fortunate. Everything has just been word of mouth. I've worked with. Um, uh, with some pretty big companies where uh, where I live locally, so I've been very very blessed, definitely. That's, cool. That's good. That's brilliant. Let's dive into the the nitty gritty of why we are interviewing you because uh, through the podcasts I do I interview people who have come from hard times but have had to manage to either overcome and to come out the other end, the light at the end of the tunnel, and to have that life by working extremely hard so um and that's the reason and that's the reason why i'm interviewing Ixo, uh, and she told me an amazing story behind the scenes and, and people have maybe have heard this before you may not have heard it before but i think the whole point of having how it's technically almost like a, rag, a rags to riches in a sense but it's a it's just, share that somebody else out there who listens to this may have been through the same thing in some way or form maybe never spoken out and wants to be able to really reach out in some way or wants to share their story just to be able to to be able to release that burden of what they've gone through in their life so let's uh, tell us about exactly where life started for you and uh, and how it all basically from being born obviously but uh, where did it all kick off and when did the, the really nastiness start to kick in? Well, I was not born in the United States, even though I've lived here for most of my life. I came to the United States when I was about six years old. And um, it was it was a, a big, a big shock, a big shock. Um, I was uh, born in Taiwan, in Taipei, Taiwan. And it's a those of you that don't know where that is. It is a part of China. It is the Republic of China. It is. It is east, southeast of China on a little island by itself. It's a teeny tiny little island, and that's where I grew up. And uh, growing up, I was, uh, if there was such a thing as a, a, a wild child, kind of a, a child that was raised in the wild and that doesn't know anything, uh, does not understand the concept of money, does not understand the concept of family, does not understand the concept of life, um, that would pretty much be me. I pretty much grew up in uh, extreme poverty. It was a, a very challenging time as a child. Went through a lot of experiences that 
it's quite shocking to me myself today because it's the stories that that I have are uh, it seems like it should have been something that was from the 1920s or even the 1800s. I, I feel that some of the stories that, that I have gone through is quite shocking to myself. So my parents um, had the dream of wanting better for their family. I am uh, one of I am one of five kids. I am the youngest of five. I have uh, three, one, two, I have three older sisters and a brother. And uh, my brother stands right in the middle. He is child number three. And if you understand anything about the Asian culture, they value the boys a lot more than they do the girls, which is quite ironic because um, let's just get this straight. A lot of times it's your daughters. When you get older, it's the daughters that come around and take care of your well-being. Um, a lot of times, you know, the sons are um, out and about doing, you know, busy day and, uh, you know, they have their own family that they're trying to take care of. And so it's always been uh, even my family specifically, my mom and dad are very traditional, especially my father, super traditional. So he's very rooted into this culture that boys are um, boys are gold and and women uh, if you're a woman, you're pretty much considered garbage. And, you know, as a child, I had that drilled in me, but thank goodness that I am pretty, um, resilient. And so I, it was just words to me. It, it, it didn't really affect me. Words were just words. And I, I always knew who I am, who I will be. So it never really affected me. Uh, it could have affected, you know, some of my other siblings, but I've always just been pretty resilient or um, maybe maybe the better word would be stubborn. Uh, OK, would you think what is it? Um, is this still rooted tradition still happening now in Taiwan? Is it kind of still that way or is it kind of changed? Well, you know, I think it's pretty progressive. It's a, it's a lot more progressive now. You know, a lot of women are in the in the work you know workforce where you know back in the day it, it, the women your one job was to um, grow up, get married, raise children. Um, so I think the times have definitely changed. But uh, overall, I think as a culture they still value boys. And if there's you know if there are any other Asians out there. That like to chime in with your, you know, own experience. <clears throat> excuse me, with your own experience in your life. Um, I know I have a lot of Asian friends, and uh, it, it's pretty similar. That you know, the their brothers, you know, the sons, they're a little bit, they're high, they're held to a higher standard than the than the women. So, when tell us the bit which really started taking hold after your education. Well, we obviously are. Your parents did. When we spoke offline, yeah, but your so your parents moved to America. They emigrated to America. Um, how did that? What was the process, and what happened to you? Yeah, so you know, I was born in the seventies, and I I'm not exactly sure the year that my dad came to the United States. But my dad is a very, 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 or he was. He's passed now. He was a very, very accomplished cook. He. Um, you know, back in those days, um, 
you know, my dad was born in the 1920s. And so back in those days, uh, to have a trade in, uh, in China, my dad is from mainland China and he is from the province of Sichuan, or some of you like to say Sichuan, but it's pronounced Sichuan. And, um, you know, growing up, he himself grew up in poverty and for him to have, have the opportunity to have a trade to be taught and taken under the wing of this uh, of this amazing chef uh, that was very well known in in uh, China was quite a, a feat for him. He didn't have any education. My mom also didn't have any education. I believe my mom only um, I don't I think it was only elementary school that she went to. I don't even think she went to junior high high school. So, you know, I, my parents are uh, pretty uneducated, but they are very hardworking. <clears throat> hello, 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 and and um, my uh, my dad that came to the United States. He had the opportunity to come to the United States, and I believe it could have been Ohio is when he where he first planted his his feet. Um, he had an opportunity. He had a friend in the United States that asked him if he was willing to perhaps come and uh, help out a, a restaurant to build the business. So my dad saw that as an opportunity to possibly better the life of his family. So he took that opportunity and he left. Uh, he met my mom in Taiwan. I was born in Taiwan. And uh, shortly after I was born, uh, I believe I was one years old. Shortly after that, he left. And so I never really got to know him. And um, shortly even after that, my mom took the three eldest, the three oldest kids and came to the United States and leaving my sister and I behind. And so I'm going to affectionately refer to the sister that I that was left behind with me. Her name, her name is her nickname is Fatso, but she's not fat. She's not fat, but her nickname is Fatso, and she only responds to Fatso. If we call her by her real name, she doesn't even respond to you. And the reason why her name is Fatso is because when she was born, um, she was very plump. She looked like the Michelin man where her, her <laughs> arms and her legs had these segments. They were like segments. And so we have just affectionately called her Fatso, but I rest assured she is not fat at all these days yeah. she is actually a size two which is teeny tiny and <laughs> she's tiny but she still responds to fatso and if i called her by her real name if my mom called her by her real name she just tunes us out so you know it's kind of just stuck so anyways fatso is two and a half years older than i am so she's uh, child number four and her and i were left in taiwan my mom and dad took the three the, the the first three and they came to the united states uh with the possibility of trying to make a better life for the family and um you know instead of leaving us with our blood auntie and blood uncle which i till this day i still do not understand why they didn't do that but my mom decided to leave us my sister and i um with one of her friends and who again we grew up in poverty. So you can understand the living conditions were not up to par. Um, in terms of toilet, we didn't have a toilet. We had a hole in the ground. Um, we had no electricity. We had no water. 
there's no such thing as let me turn on the faucet and and here comes running water that didn't exist okay so you can imagine um, how happy i was when i came to the united states the first time i saw a toilet um, i must have flushed it 20 times until my mom's <laughs> like you're wasting water stop <laughs> my, my goodness my goodness so what being living in these conditions it's that such a young age and knowing I mean, not having the basic essentials like we do now. I mean, having to, I mean, where did you go and get water from? What was the, what happened? I mean, do not have any running water, where did you get the water? You know, was it a local river or was it a stream or was it a central tap somewhere or what was it? Well, there was well, a well. There well. was a well, exactly. There was a well and then you literally had a bucket and a string and you just threw it in there and you just hauled it up and then you would take the water and you would boil it. Uh, we didn't, of course, we didn't have like a gas stove or electric stove or anything like that. It was just, here's some logs and uh, here are some rocks. And there you go, you know, kind of like um, camping style. And so we heated up water if we needed to heat it up. Um, but uh, the lady that took care of us, um, we stayed with her for many, many years. And this particular lady, um, you know, out of respect of the culture, we just called her auntie. And uh, what my parents didn't know was that this lady was a gambleholic. And so every every six months when my mom and dad sent money from the United States to Taiwan for my fatso and I's education, food, clothing, you know, anything we need. Well, this lady took it and gambled it all away. She was a gambleholic, so she couldn't control herself. Um, Fortunately for my sister, she is a lot more educated than I was um, because, again, she's two and a half years older than me. So she actually has uh, she went to school and she can read and write Chinese um, till this day. Uh, for me, unfortunately, you know, I was kind of left at home, kind of like a wild, a wild animal. Nobody really spoke to me. So up until I was age six, I was still doing baby talk. I couldn't put a sentence together. Everything was hungry, um, no, eat, um, no, go, yes, no. I mean, very, very simple, basic baby talk type. And um, I still remember the first day that they threw me in school. Um, I've never had new clothes until the day I went to school. And I never went into... I never went into like a kind of like a pre-K, like a preschool, kindergarten, uh, because a lady just decided not to put me in school. And so you can imagine my shock when it came to first grade. She dressed me up in uniform because we had to wear uniforms. And I was like, oh, well, this is new. I kind of like this. And she just took me to school, dropped me off. And there you go. You're in school. And I remember uh, sitting in class. We were, you know, ushered into our classrooms and I sat there the first day of school the teacher called everybody's name and you had to raise your hand when the teacher called your name you had to raise your hand you had to say here well guess what she called my name but I didn't know it was me because I didn't know my own name right and uh she kind of did a process of elimination and when she found out that I was the child that did not raise my hand when she called my name. I was made an example of because of uh, not being obedient. So I was asked to come into the uh, to come to stand in front of the class in front of everybody. 
And I'm going to explain this to you because um, you guys, this is, remember, this is a different time, a different country, right? This is in the, this is in the 1970s. Well, this teacher had a desk and behind her desk was the, was a wall. And on top of this wall was a display case, like a shadow box. And in this shadow box were different thicknesses of whips. Whips, you guys. Whips. And she opened the case, took down a whip, and she asked me to take my hand out with my knuckles facing up. And she would take the whip and she would very strategically strike you on your knuckles. She would whip you, whip you, whip you. And then she would make her announcement that, you know, if you're disobedient, la, 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 um, this is the consequence. And I was made an example of on the first day of school. Well, me being pretty much like a wild child, uneducated, couldn't even put a sentence together, not even knowing my real name or what my name was at all. Um, I didn't understand it. Right. You can imagine the confusion that I had. So this kind of went on. It was quite unfortunate because you are taking a child that knows nothing, could not even put a sentence together at six years old, um, throw the person in first grade. And all of a sudden you want this child to learn the phonetics, like the ABCs. Well, I didn't know my phonetics. I couldn't even put a sentence together. Yet you want me to learn the phonetics. So, you know, every day we had, every morning we had a quiz. And the teacher, um, you know, every day I got a zero on my quiz because I couldn't do my phonetics, which is, you know, in English it's A, B, C, D, so forth and so forth. Well, in in, uh, Chinese or in Mandarin, it's ba, pa, ma, fa, you know, on and on. Well, I couldn't grasp it. So every day when I got a zero on my quiz every morning, I got called in front of the class for not memorizing my phonetics. And there it was again, got that whip, got to take your knuckles out, whip, whip, whip. And it got so bad that eventually um, you know, when you get whipped enough as a child, having very, you know, tender skin, um, eventually you break the skin on the knuckles and, uh, it, you know, I, and then I had, I ended up having, um, a lot of scars, but thank goodness, you know, I was young enough to, you know, your skin continues to, um, I don't know. What's the word? Yeah. Heal. Yes. So tell us about, um, I mean, when, at what point, did you obviously didn't not knowing your name? When did you really start to find out your name? And when did you maybe your did your speech slowly come to not being not baby talk? It wasn't until I came to the United States. So pretty much and, then. So and, yeah. and when did you did you just you always went to school in the United States? But when did you, I mean were you still kind of speaking baby talk when you arrived? And kind of what what how old were you? How many years after did you suddenly it kind of stop just being speaking normally oh that took a while it, it it really took a while for me to grasp the language because you have to remember not only did i not know so my dad is like i said my dad he's from china he's from mainland china from the province of sichuan 
right? So there they speak Sichuanese. So growing up, I had to learn Sichuanese. My mom is from、uh, Taiwan, and she speaks Taiwanese. So we learned how to speak Taiwanese. And then the main dialect, which is the, the most common dialect, is Mandarin. And so we learned to speak Mandarin. And my sister, as we got older, my sister married a, a gentleman from、um, from Hong Kong, and they speak Cantonese. So then we learned how to speak Cantonese as well. And so you can imagine the confusion. And then my parents owned a restaurant, and we had a lot of we had a lot of hired help that spoke Spanish. So in between. Taiwanese and Sichuanese, and, <laughs> and my mom would be like, "Hey, Andale, Andale, come on, come here, come here." And she and we're you know in the and I, I could not figure out what was Chinese, what was Spanish, what was Sichuanese. I was very confused, and it took me a long, long time because not only did I not know my own language because I didn't speak it, but now I am forced to learn. Multiple languages, and on top of that, English, which English is actually a very difficult language to learn,、um, because a lot of things don't make sense, right? But so it didn't take me, so you know, Fraser, it took me a long, 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 long time. I didn't really come into myself until maybe until junior high. It took that long. All the way through, you know, all the way through elementary is very, very difficult, and it it made it even more difficult because when when I came to the, you know, <laughs> here it is. Those of you that this may be a little shocker, but in China, the day that you're born, you are considered one years old. Did you guys know that? So you're not all right. You're not months old. You're considered one when you're born. So yeah, if you're born January first, you're not you're not supposed to be one years old until the, a whole entire twelve months later. Well,、wow. that's not how it works. Like the day that I'm born, I'm already one years old. How the heck does that work? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's all screwy, right? So anyway, so I came、Ooh. to the United States. So so I came to the United States, and instead of putting me into first grade, which I should have been in. Uh, they threw me into second grade, which, wow, was super difficult for me. So what happened was I just couldn't get it. I just didn't get it. You know, I didn't get the whole entire. Why do I have to go to school? What do you mean? And and I was very rebellious because I didn't understand what was going on. And there was no way for you to cognitively speak to a child that had you know. Your brain operates like you're one or two years old. You don't speak. You you can't put a sentence. You can't put a thought together because you don't understand. It's like you don't understand life. It's like literally like raising, taking a child from the wild, and then just sticking them in school. It's just it doesn't it just doesn't make sense. Nothing is going to connect.、So、it took me a long long time, in、um, for me to come into my own until I really understood things in. You know, I think things started falling together、um, around eighth grade, which is so our junior high is seventh and eighth grade. And when when eighth grade hit, all of a sudden, I don't know what it was, the light bulb just went on, and I just was like, okay, I need to study. I want to have a better life. You know, I'm going to focus on my academics.、Um, but I remember, you know, well, 
I'll let you pause for a second because you're <laughs> <just> take, <laughs> take a breather. I know, I know. Just for those who are obviously we're tuned into the Ramsey Unleashed Going Beyond Borders podcast. My guest is Uke Berry, um, all the way from Cal- um, it's, it's California. And if, I, never, I keep because we've been talking about your originally form, missed that part, California. Um, but we are using a platform called haps.tv, uh, but we are using more for the audio purpose as we're, and we will be describing things that we may be people who are in a live chat on in this broadcast. And we thank you for the support uh, who are listening. Um, and we just want to, yeah, we are talking about a very challenging story of from pretty much rags to riches of having to, due to traditional values of where she was born and, and just the kind of the hardships of what she has been through and the challenges and I'm sure many people have gone through that in many many cultures that the traditions of uh, that if you have um, kids there's kids in the family if there's more the, the sons are more worthy than the daughters and that kind of thing so uh, and that's the challenge as we're talking about is overcome and we're kind of get, we're getting to the nitty gritty of that so we have to give her a bit of a breather there because it's an important story but but we're going to, it's the, the story of how she became what we asked before, how she's into the position she is now over 20 odd years as a graphic designer and doing it with passion and still loves it. So, and that's how we're, the, why we're doing this. So, um, but let's, now, at the stage that you've now woken up, that you've kind of realised I need to study, what were the hurdles, now knowing your dad was pretty much, your, your the daughters were not to be supersede your brother, at what point this would now you wanted to study? You've just the light bulb's gone off and you're going right. Where where did that, where did it all kick off from there? Well, you know, I'm going to go back to to second grade really quick, and that's that. Um, I flunked second grade. Like, why would you do that to a child? You know, I I, I those of you that are you know teachers out there, principals. Um, it, it has affected me uh, tremendously. I got picked on and mocked as if life wasn't already hard enough. If you have the opportunity to give that child an extra aid, you know, to hire an extra aid to get that child extra help to make things click for them, to help them along, to push them along, you know, into third grade, into the next grade. You know, that's that's the advice that I would give to those teachers out there that have a child that is struggling. Because what happened was as all my friends went into third grade, I got held back. I flunked second grade. And um, then all my friends started making fun of me in third grade in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, um, I got picked on and call, I got called the dumb kid, the dumb one, you're stupid, um, you're an idiot, you're a moron. And it affected me, you know, it affected me a lot um, because I didn't understand, I didn't understand a lot of things. Um, and then, you know, then we fast forward to um, junior high, you know, I did, I did well in junior high. Like I said, eighth grade really clicked for me. Um, then I went into high school. And then when I went into high school, that's when things really, um, that's when things really, really um, made a lot of sense to me. I wanted better. I knew that I knew that I, whatever it is that I want, I have to do it for myself. I can't wait for an opportunity. <clears throat> I can't make wait for someone to do it for me. If I want it, um, I got to go and put in the hard work myself. So, you know, when I was in high school, 
you know, I, I was taking, you know, all my classes were AP classes, you know, AP Calc, AP Physics, AP Bio. Um, and, and I did, I did well. And I ended up in college, you know, went to a local college in Southern California. And, and um, I did really well. I was, uh, I actually started off as a computer programmer. Some of you may not know that, but um, as, as passionate as I am about graphic design, I started off in p computer programming because, um, you know, it's a, it's a very stable career. You will always find uh, someone that will need your trade. So I started off as a CS major, which is a computer science major. I did it for um, a year and I was really, really good at it. You know, I was number two in my class. Um, uh, the number one girl, uh, she's still actually my friend and I still keep in contact with her now. Uh, she's brilliant. This, this, this lady is brilliant. And, uh, you know, we, we loved to code and uh, we did it and we did it well. You know, it was kind of like math. It was, everything was just logical. Coding is just, that's all it is. It's logic. And, um, but the thing was, it wasn't fulfilling me. Creatively, it wasn't fulfilling me, even though I did it well and I knew that I would be successful in doing it and I knew that I would make lots of money in doing it. And I made that decision to say, well, is this going to fulfill me as I get older as a career? You know, when I'm 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, doing this computer programming, is it going to fulfill this creative need that I have? And the answer was no. So I decided. Tell us about the, you, you, you spoke offline, you did say you found you have a faith and what was it that, from six years old? So tell us how that, you're sort of just getting in, well, realising you had, you believed in something and what brought you to where you, and got you through these tough times. Well, you know, it was quite interesting. It's quite interesting because my fam we're not a religious family, right? We're not a religious family, you know, um, until like until much, much older. But my my dad, he's an atheist. He really doesn't believe, you know, in anything. Um, my mom is a Buddhist. I have two of my uh, two of my sisters are Buddhists. My brother is a hardcore Christian. Um, my brother um, his wife is Christian. He's Christian. Um, he goes to church every, you know, every Sunday. He does a lot of community work for the church. Um, his uh, kids are all baptized. And as a matter of fact, uh, all of his kids are, they're all named after bib biblical names. Um, then you have uh, me. I am Christian. And, you know, like I said, growing up, uh, religion was not never really a, a big part of our conversation, but at the age of six, I knew that there was a God. I didn't have any, nobody needed to tell me that. I didn't learn it from school. I certainly did not learn it from my family, but in my heart, I just knew when I put my head down at night and if I had a rough day, I would pray to God. It. I just knew that God existed in my heart. And um, I'm not a religious person by any means, but, um, you know, when you just when you just know something, you just know. So, uh, um, did that still? Did your faith still keep you going through the, even the struggles of being bullied and things? Well, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate, and a lot. I think this a lot of people could resonate with this too. Is that you know you go through your life and you don't really 
you know, think about religion, you don't think about God, you don't, you know, practice, you don't pray until you actually run into difficulties, you know, whether you're going through tragedy, whether you're going through uh, loss, divorce, um, when you feel like the world is caving in, then you start to seek God. Well, you know, God has always just been there for me. Um, you know, I know that, that I have to put in the hard work. God's not going to come in here and just make everything okay. I got to put in the hard work. Um, so, you know, God is not, it's not, uh, you know, like I said, I'm not a very, I'm not a religious person at all, but I just knew in my heart without being told. Um, I just knew in my heart at the age of six that he's always there and that, you know, and that there's actually, there's angels watching over me. Tell us um, a bit about the, obviously you've just, uh, you're getting, you're going through your grades in school and you, what was next? You obviously, you were wanting to get, go, you want to go to university or anything or the next step because uh, you had this hunger to study and obviously you had the, you were bullied a lot, but also the counteract of your, the traditional values of your dad as well. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, I, like I said, I loved graphic design. And so the first year I, I was in college, I studied uh, computer science and um, I studied that for a year, didn't feel fulfilled. So I approached my mom. I said, Hey, you know, I want to try art. And she says, no, I, I, I don't like that idea because it's the typical starving artist. And we all know, you know, it, <laughs> you do not want your kids to major in art because you, you fear that they, uh, maybe could not make a career and make a living off of it. So I begged my mom, begged my mom, and she she didn't like the idea at all. She just wanted something a little bit more predictable. You know, why can't you go be an accountant? You know, why can't go to be an engineer? Why can't you go be a computer science major? Yeah. The typical, you know, the, the typical parent thing. Oh, go be a doctor, right? So um, I finally convinced her and I said, look, for this semester, I will take all of my prerequisites Right. I'll take all my prerequisites in my regular schools, um, my regular GE. And um, but I want to have the opportunity to also take a semester of art. And she says, OK. And I said, and I will get straight A's. She says, well, I don't know how you're going to do that because you're going to be carrying 28 units. So a normal a normal full time school, full, full time student is uh, 16 units. Um, and that semester I carried um, almost 30 credits. Um, as a matter of fact, you technically cannot carry that many credits at one school. So I would go to a JC and I would take like a community college and I would take my uh, my GEs over at, <laughs> I know this is very complicated, right? I would take, um, mm -hmm. I would take extra credits and then have them transferred over so, so that I can maximize my credits. Um, that that semester and I was you know my classes started at 7 30 I had art history in the morning at 7 30 in the morning my last class was 10 10 30 at night the whole entire day non-stop with very little break in between I was literally running uh, in between classes sometimes the classes were overlapped by 10 minutes or 20 minutes and I would be late for that um, it was a very difficult um, it was a very difficult semester but I loved it because I had the opportunity to take art. And so uh, 
the, the, the silver lining in all of that is I aced all of my classes and all of my GEs. Um, and I went to my mom when I got my report card. I said, look, I took 28 units this semester and um, I got straight A's and I want to have the opportunity to go into art. I want to go into graphic design. I'm passionate about it. So what did you, what did she say? Was she quite accepting or was it due to your dad? It was the obstacle. Well, she, she was accepting of it. She says, fine. And my dad kind of, you know, my dad never really uh, cared about our education. Um, and to be quite honest, you know, a, a lot of you may have kids or maybe even yourself where you hated school. Well, for me, I loved school. If there was such a thing, I always joke that if there was such a thing about um, majoring in school, I would have been a school major because I loved school. I loved going to school. I loved uh, doing homework. I loved studying. I loved reading books and understanding art. And I mean, just all kinds of stuff. So my mom uh, was always very supportive. My mom's always been very supportive. Um, my dad, he just really didn't care. He, he's like, whatever, you know, you're, you're, pretty much just garbage you know you're you're just a daughter you're just you know who cares it's, it's really more about um his son so i remember um when i graduated college um in my undergrad i decided i wanted to pursue higher education and i wanted to get my master's in graphic design and um it was a very extremely extremely tough program to get into um, a lot of the people that apply into the master's program are already working professionals. And here I am, my senior year in college, applying into the master's program, no professional working experience. I was up against 20, you know, over 20 people that were working professionals already. So I definitely um, was pretty challenged in in my portfolio so it's a little different when you go into the master's program for graphic design <clears throat> you instead of applying into the program and getting in what we have to do is we have an interview with the entire art staff and um, and the dean of art as well and they uh, actually require you to have a critique and a portfolio you, you have to this whole entire presentation it's almost like an interview you guys Let's take a small breather because this is a good story how you got in. So let's say you, it's not just a, the easy of just filling in an application form and uh, it's not just that. So we're basically, um, yeah, so um, it's all about, yeah, it's but not just the challenge. But we're going to shout out to people who support our show. It's good to have supporters, uh, sponsors of Ramsey Unleashed, obviously Frame Your Day app uh, by Ephia Lethem and Natural Soap by Zagia. From Zakia Ringold. Um, so thank you for these people who support our show. Uh, and also other people like Brent Man, Brentmanmusic.com, Eileen Smith from Eileen Smith, uh, com, uh Benita Charles, um, John Drummond from Ideas Go Live, people who support us and the show and things going forward. Uh, so thank you for them. We are interviewing Ig Berry, all the way from California, originally from uh, born and brought up in Taiwan. Well, from Taiwan for, uh, for the first six years and then was moved to America. I mean, thank you. We're hearing a challenging story of how she basically arrives to Richie's story of where, um, from basically being literally in poverty to suddenly never having a a toilet or anything, but now having a toilet and having things just and but overcoming from not being able to physically talk properly, but just baby talk and in later years, uh, not your normal kind of. 
a way of learning in life. So we're, we're grateful and obviously finding our faith and knowing that she had a faith and how which got her through uh, and got to the stage that she basically a bell went off in her head and a light, the light went and she went just to study and go forward and rise above everything that she's gone through. So we come back to the challenging part that she's wanting to go to university and the challenge she had to do to get there and the things she had, she had to literally jump through hoops galore and we're going to hear that story just now. So back to yourself, tell us about how you had to jump through so many hoops just to get to university. Thanks, Ranger. So let me kind of take a little tangent here. So we are, again, we are on HAPS. And those of you that are enjoying this interview and enjoying the content that Frazier puts out, you know, um, if you guys could kindly drop him some awards, that would be super sweet. Thank you. Um, right. We're on, on a platform called HAPS for those who are listening on the podcast. It's HAPS.TV. And thank you for their platform that they are, we are using and they were grateful for the support they have. But yeah, so carry on. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, so I wanted to pursue higher education. Thanks, Jane. So I went to pursue higher education and, um, you know, I, the, the cards were stacked against me because the competition was tough. <clears throat> like I said, I was, uh, you know, a senior in, in college, just finishing up my undergraduate program when I applied to the program. Um, the interview was pretty nerve wracking, but, you know, I, I just went in there and I said, you know, if, if God wants this to be, um, then then it'll be. You know, I mean, I, I just I came, I showed up, I did my best and the rest of the rest of it, you know, um, God is going to say, well, if this is meant for your for your life to be this way, then then he'll make it happen. So I went into my interview and uh, the 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 interview process, like I said, was pretty nerve wracking. Um, the dean actually asked me one of the toughest questions. He says um, he asked me there was a book and it's it's a it's an art book called Arnheim and it, it's it's like war and peace. This book is thick. It's got hundreds of pages and it's all text no, uh, no photos, no pictures, nothing. And it, that particular book is a requirement for art majors to read. Well, nobody really reads it, but I did. I was fascinated by it. I, you know, anything about graphic design, I was fascinated by. And so the question that he had asked me was, did you read Arnheim? And I said, yes, I did. And he asked me about a particular chapter. And I, I was like, oh, my God, that chapter was so amazing. Let me tell you all about it. And he was like, what? You actually read the book? And I'm like, well, I mean, didn't you ask? That was part of the curriculum, right? You wanted me to read it. You assigned it. And uh, that's one thing about me is that um, I like to read things, you know, some things like um, uh, like your terms and service, your TOS. Um, mm -hmm. I like to read fine print in all kinds of things i don't know i just find it very fascinating and um well, people just find look at the fine print and go yeah i'll just uh, that's fine i'll accept that and before you know it you, you go if something happens you go uh eh, did, did i agree to that exactly. <laughs> just because you don't read them <laughs> and I, do. I read i read the fine print i just find it very fascinating because so i love has there no. just an off segment just have the amount of fine print you read has there anything that you've read and you realize, no, I'm not going to sign this because I, I don't find anything you've not agreed with, or you've just signed it anyway because you've just read it and agree with it. Is it so, because the thing is, it, you know, that the fine print is it's almost like a contract, right? right so okay. for example, like when we bought our house, 
we had to read, you know, you sign the when you bought your house, they don't just sign one little piece of paper. It is hundreds, hundreds of pages long. And I remember going in and uh, the lady says, okay, sign here, sign here, sign here. And I'm looking at her like, are you crazy? I didn't read this. I can't just sign this. And so I told her, I said, well, I'm going to take all this paperwork home. I'm going to read it tonight. And uh, if I got questions, I'll come back tomorrow before I sign my life away to you. I need to I need to read everything. And the, the, the truth of the matter, again, is the fine print is almost like a contract. If you don't agree with something, then you just either don't buy it or don't sign up. Right. And so it, it is what it is. It's a contract. And those are the rules. And if you don't like it, then you don't have to partake. So what it's a bit obviously you did partake in this case. So after reading the first terms, whenever she went to the I'll go back to your book after reading this book, you to get into, and you went back to the person to probably. Oh, yes. And so so anyways, the uh, the dean of art was quite impressed that I actually did read the book and was excited about that particular chapter he was talking about. Um, and you know, long story short, I got into the master's program. I was, um, the master's program, the way that it works is, um, you know, each student has a mentor teacher. One of the staff is, becomes your mentor and you have to pick two, uh, two teachers to be your mentor. So you can imagine, um, if let's say this semester, um, 10 or 20, uh, 20 students graduated out of the master's program, then they only have 20 positions available for new graduates to come in. So you can imagine it was, uh, you know, the, the, the workload for these teachers to have to mentor all of these students. It was quite, it was, you know, they had their work cut out for them. And in the history, from my understanding of graphic design in the graphic design department, where the school that I went to, um, the teachers have never actively um, sought out a student to mentor. Usually the student that just uh, got received into the master's program would have to go and approach a teacher to see if they're even available so that they can take them under their wings. Well, for the first time um, in, the, in the master's program, I had a teacher fight for me um, because other teachers wanted to mentor me. Um, and so I did not know this until maybe uh, maybe the semester that I got into the graphic design. Um, I had a teacher, his name is Sergio, and um, I'm very fortunate that he fought for me because he would have been the mentor that I wanted because this gentleman had the um, ability to design and think outside of the box, right. you know, Instead of following your very traditional designs and traditional techniques, he always was trying to push the envelope, which is more of my style of what I like to do. Um, so, you know, I finished my um, before I got, you know, before I actually started my master's program, I went to my mom and I said, you know, I made it. I got accepted. And she was very happy. And I said, but I'm, I'm not going to go. And she's like, I don't understand why. And I said, well, I know it's a financial strain on the family. And I know that I, you know, I just, I do not come from a family that had money. And so I knew that it would have been a financial strain on my, um, on my parents. And so I said, you know, I'm just going to go work. You know, I got my undergraduate, or I got my, my, my BFA. It's called a, uh, not a BA. It's got a BFA, Bachelor's of Fine Art. 
And I said, you know, I I'm, I'm, have the ability to work. I'm just going to work. And she says, well, you know, I don't think, I don't think you should, I think you should go and get your education, get, get your higher education. And I said, mom, we don't have the money. And she says, well, you know, try for financial aid. So I did, I went in to my grade level counselor and I said, Hey, I would like to, um, try and see if I can get financial aid to get into my master's program to help me out. And she told me flat out, you know, we don't really, um, give aid in the master's program. Usually it's for the undergraduates. And I said, well, can we try? And she says, sure. So, you know, filled out the application and uh, came back with a big red stamp, like big red stamp that says denied. And I was heartbroken. And so um, I went back to her again. And this time I went with my, um, with my report cards Right. Went to her with my report cards, um, all the classes I have taken and my GPA was really high. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I could just tell you that I loved school and it was really high. And um, I had I attached my all of my report cards with the application for the second time, submitted it. And this lady helped me, my grade level coordinator. And um, it came back for the second time with a big red stamp again, denied. And I was heartbroken, let down again. And I said, well, what do we do? And, you know, there's something to be said about persistence. If you want it and you want it bad, you're going to try again. You're going to try and try and try and try and try again. So I went to the dean of the art department and I went to a lot of my teachers, the staff. And I said, can you please write a letter of recommendation for me? I would like to get... Um, I would like to try and go for a grant if I could get some kind of a financial aid to help me out. And um, the dean wrote a very nice, you know, very nice letter. Um, and I included that again with my report cards. And I went to the store and this is before I knew how to bake, before I knew how to cook. I went to the store and I bought the cookie dough that came in that little tube. And I just cut it out, you know, you squeeze it out of the tube, you cut it out and then you just put it in the oven and it's, you know, that's all you do. Well, I couldn't even get that right. I burnt the cookies until it was rock hard, but I didn't know what else to do. So I packed up the cookies that was all burnt like a rock, packed it up in a cute little package. And um, I marched myself down to my grade level coordinator again. And she kind of had a sigh when she saw me. And I said, I beg of you to please help me. I promise that this will be the last time you'll ever see me. Here are all the letters of recommendation from the Dean of Art, the Dean of Art Department and all of the staff members. Here's my report cards and I baked some cookies for you. Please, please help me with one more time with filling out this application. And, and I promise you'll never ever see me again after this. Well, guess what? I got, it got approved. And not only did I get financial aid, but I actually got a full grant for the entire duration of my master's program, a program that is um, supposed to be four. It's a four year program. And um, I did not want to take any breaks. So during the summer, I took classes during the summer. I took multiple classes during the summer. During the winter, we call it intercession. And mm -hmm. even the winter, instead of taking that break, I, I went and I crammed in all of my art, um, you know, just so that I can hurry up and be finished. And the reason I did that was because somebody out there in the world 
donated that money for me to be able to go through my master's program on a full grant. And I didn't want to take advantage of that. I didn't want to pull it out, you know, you know, take advantage of it and, and run it through the whole four years. So I actually got my master's in two years. Um, like I said, somebody out there was generous enough to front that money to give somebody like me an opportunity. And so I took it and Doing. I got my master's. So I'm sitting here today with my master's degree. Somebody belonged to second grade, you guys. That's brilliant. Just uh, for those who just think at that point, when you know that you, had to go through you had to apply for the money knowing that you and have to do all that work just to get that rubber stamp to say yes you're in to get that relief i mean you must be to get that rubber stamp to say you're in after the third almost like the third time for trying and you must have thinking wow i mean what you must have had the most emotional high low you must be just in a complete and utter i mean how what was your emotions at that time if you can recall well i went to my mailbox and I opened it and there was this letter and I was like, oh no, here it is. I remember getting this letter again, you know, cause remember I've had, I, I had to open this letter twice prior. So I'm just like, all right, here it is. And, um, it said, congratulations, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're going to get this grant. And I was like, woohoo in the middle of the street. And I, we, we live in a cul-de-sac where my parents lived. They lived in a cul-de-sac and there was a big, huge park. And I ran all the way to the park, went on the swing, went down the slide, ran all the way up to the top of the hill, rolled all the way down and then ran home. And I was, I was gassed, right? I was hyperventilating because I was so happy. And my mom's like, she's like, oh my God, are you okay? Oh my God, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I'm like, I got it. I got it. I got it. And of course, she was very, very happy. Uh, my dad, on the other hand, was not so happy. Um, as a matter of fact, um, when I had initially approached my mom and my dad that I wanted to get um, higher education, my dad looked at me um, with, with a little scowl on his face. Like you can see by his eyebrows, he was not having any of it. And uh, I very, I, I recollect very, very vividly what he said to me. He said, I forbid you to get your master's degree. I forbid you because no daughter of mine will ever supersede in education to my son. I forbid you to get your master's. Um, well, you know, I got to live my life. I can't, you know, live the life that my dad wants for me. I got to live my life the way that I see is going to be the most fulfilling for me. So I went ahead and, you know, got my grant, started my master's. And um, it was a hard and difficult road. Like, you know, a, a typical parent, like I said, I always feel like I'm not living in the generation that I should be living in because I feel like I, I, I feel like I lived in a generation that was in the 1920s. It, it just right. feels really backwards. Um, so you know, going through my and and Jane here, um, she would appreciate this story because she um, she does watercolor. She does a lot of art. So I remember there was uh, one particular 
um, memory that I have that really was quite a pivotal point um, in my life. And that was this particular class that I had. It was an upper division watercolor. And I had fell in, I, I fell in love with a medium working with watercolors. And um, I had done this big, huge watercolor and um, I could not fit it in my locker at school. And I had no choice but to take it home because I couldn't store it in my locker. So I took it home um, and my dad had warned me already that he will have nothing to do with me and my graphic design and my pers uh, the, 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 how I wanted to pursue my master's. And that if he sees anything, if he, see any, if he saw anything that was uh, remotely close to graphic design or art or anything um, that I, in quote, better watch out. So I didn't have a choice with my watercolor. I brought it home because I needed to work on it. Um, and I remember that day very vividly. It was a Saturday. It was drizzling outside with you know light rain. And I was working on my watercolor painting in my room. I was locked myself in my room. And um, it was about uh, lunchtime. So I thought, well, I'm gonna go and go to you know Jack in the Box and get myself a burger, fries. And so I left, came back and my watercolor painting was gone gone. Of course, I panicked, didn't know where it was. And it was a big painting, you guys. This was not like, you know, like your little inhale by 11 canvas. It was a big, big sheet of watercolor paper. Well, <clears throat> I um, ended up looking for it and I found it. It was thrown in the trash in the backyard Half of it was hanging out of the trash can because it was so big. And because it had been drizzling that day, half of my watercolor painting was ruined. So I took that painting in. I repaired and salvaged what I could. I um, finished it up. And, you know, I cut off the part that needed to be cut off. I finished up what I needed, um, submitted it. You know, it was a school project, submitted it. Um, that painting is actually it was a still life and it had this it had this angel in it and like i said you know frazier you're talking about um god and religion and having faith um you know you i think one of these days i'll take a photo of this painting and you will see that there's this gorgeous angel mm -hmm. and so you know everything does always come full circle doesn't it so i yes. So I submitted this um, this watercolor painting, and the teacher loved it, loved it so much that he wanted to purchase it from me. And uh, I said, you know, I, I don't want to sell my art. You know, I just want to be able to just kind of keep it in my portfolio. And um, it was such a pivotal point in my life that, you know, to have a parent not want your child to do well in life, because that's how it felt like. You know, and I, like I said, I was, I always feel like I lived in a, in a different century. Um, well, this painting um, was, it became quite an emotional piece to me because of what had the story that had transpired that um, after um, I kept it the whole entire time and I never framed it, I always kept it in my portfolio. Then when I got married, I had it framed. I never, never put it on my wall.
and the frame was a very expensive frame. It was a $500 frame. It was the frame itself is very gorgeous. It's, it's a custom frame mm -hmm. and you know, I spent $500 on to frame this thing. And it sat on the floor for three years. And my husband um, had asked me, you know, why did I spend all this money to frame it and not put it on display? And I just said, well, the time just isn't right. And eventually, you know, we bought our house uh, three years later after marriage and uh, it sat on the floor in this house for another year mm -hmm. before I actually put it on display. And the place that I put it in my house is on top of the fireplace mantle. Tell us a bit about the, the there's a, ch a little bit obviously the more challenging part before that, that you, you're, well, I think maybe it was after I can't remember, but you're obviously your father passed, and that that was the a challenge, more a challenging part in your life, a decision you had to make, due to and it caused a little bit of rifts in the family. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so you know, my dad is like I say, he's very traditional, and he comes from an era that that I just can't grasp. His his thoughts and his way of thinking, it to me is is so archaic. Um, you know, when uh, many years ago, my mom had a stroke. She had, she had a massive stroke where half of her body was paralyzed and it was her right side and she is right hand dominant. Well, she was paralyzed and um, or half of her body was paralyzed. And, um, you know, the decision was to either leave her in nursing care or have her come home. And of course, we would rather mom be home in the comfort of home than, you know, be in some nursing facility. So I had a conversation with my husband and I said, you know, I want to go home and I, you know, I'm going to uh, leave for two weeks. I want to go home and I want to take care of my mom to kind of get her through this rough patch to be able to cook for her. She is a diabetic. And so um, I have a little bit of knowledge with nutrition and, and diabetes and I know, you know, what types and how to count uh, carbs and stuff. So I went back to help her. Well, the first day that I came back into the house, my dad didn't like it. And um, he kind of felt like, well, why are you here taking care of your mom? You know, you never, you don't come here and take care of me. And well, you know, and, and, and you know why? Cause you know, mom is yeah. mom. mom always supported me. My dad never really did. So um, I went uh, the first day that I was there you know, I'm not used to waking up at six o'clock in the morning. Like, you know, some of the older folks, you guys wake up at six o'clock in the morning. Some of you wake up at five 30. I don't know why. And I, you know, here I am sleeping in, sleeping in until like eight. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm hearing all this clanking and I hear this, uh, this, uh, pots and pans like being dropped on the floor. So I came running out and what I see really just broke my heart. My mom who just had a massive stroke, is a walker with the right side of her body completely paralyzed. Mm. She, her right elbow is leaning on her walker and her left hand is trying to hold a chopstick. And she is standing in, in front of the stove with a pot, some rice and water, and she's trying to make porridge. And she's just trying to stir very awkwardly with her you know, left hand and she is sweating profusely trying to hold up her own weight. And I freaked out 
And I said, why, what are you doing? You know, and she says, well, I didn't want to wake you, but I'm hungry and I need to eat so I can take my medication. And I said to her, why didn't you ask dad? Where's dad? Why didn't you ask dad to make you porridge? It's literally rice and water. And she said, I did ask him. And he said, no. I said, where's dad? And she pointed into the living room and he was laying on the couch in the living room watching her. After she just had a major stroke, watching her trying to feed herself by using her left hand, which is very, you know, awkward because she is right hand predominant. And, and she's sweating like drips of sweat coming down from her chin. So I yelled at my dad and I said, why do you not cook for mom? And his response was, I don't cook for no woman. You are beneath me. And that is what I grew up with. This is what I deal with. And so I have a lot of, you know, anger towards my dad in that way that, you know, of all the things <clears throat> like my mom has always stood by his side that he could not have at the minimal, at least make her porridge so that she can take her medications that morning. So when it came to my dad, um, you know, I finally just into my adulthood this, you know, I was in my. I was in my early 40s and I just finally decided I'm done. I, I'm done with having a relationship because it is you you have to know, you know, even if they are family, if if someone is that toxic, if someone is that toxic, you need to decide for yourself what is is it worth it for you? to have to go through that, to put yourself through that. And after many, many years, after over 40 years, I finally decided I didn't want any more of this. So I cut him out and I said, you know what? You do not deserve to have a relationship with me. I have done everything that I can. My parents never had to tell me to study. I always wanted to get, I always wanted to, to you know, to be after that 4.0 GPA. That was mm -hmm. me. Right. They never had to tell me to study. Um, it was very difficult growing up. And I just decided you you don't get to be a part of my good life. And so I decided to cut him off. And um, it was very difficult because um, because when I uh, when we got married, um, when we got married, my father, he had approached me and he says, I want to. Um, I want to, because again, you have to remember my dad is a chef. He is yeah. a very, very famous chef. Um, my mom cooked alongside. So my mom is also a chef of Sichuanese cuisine. Okay. And my, uh, you know, my dad approached me and he says, well, I want to, um, I want to have a, the banquet, a, a kind of like a, what do you call it? Like a, the pre-wedding. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he wanted to have a, a pre-wedding banquet at the house because he's a chef. And um, I said, okay, sure. Um, I, well, first I told him I didn't want him to go through the trouble, him and my mom. He says, no, I want to, I want to. And I said, okay, fine. And then eventually he says, well, you know, it's too much work, um, but uh, we want to pay, we, we want to take you to the restaurant. 
and uh, we'll pay for the banquet at the restaurant, the pre-wedding banquet. And I said, no, no, that's okay. He says, no, no, you know, your mom and I, we want to do this. We want to do this. And I said, fine. Well, my, again, I am the youngest of five kids. So I have Mm -hmm. four other siblings that are older than me. My husband only has one sister. That's it has one sibling that's his sister so my dad says well you know let's pick a date so he looks at the calendar he looks at the date and i say you know that date looks good let me you know go to my future sister-in-law and just double check to make sure that's okay well as the story goes um in my dad's mind he picked the date and once he picked it it is written in stone forever okay well it didn't work out for my future sister-in-law because her husband had to go out of state for work. And so I asked my dad, I said, Hey dad, uh, you know, we need to change this date because my future sister-in-law cannot make it. And she is very important because that is my husband's only sister. And the response that I got was, we do not change the date for nobody. The date is set. If she cannot make it too bad. And I protested. And I said, no, no, we cannot have this. We must change the date. And he says, no, we do not change the date for nobody. And I said, well, what if Fatso can't make it? You know, my sister, who, again, we affectionately name her Fatso. She's not fat. Yeah. I said, well, what if Fatso can't make it? And his response was, so what if she, if Fatso cannot make it? Your other two sisters and your brother will be there. So I thought, okay, well, let me ask this question a different way. What if my brother can't make it on that date? And he says, then we shall change the date. Wow, that's interesting. Again, you know, that kind of gives you an idea of uh, the traditional, you know, how his thought, he's very traditional, rooted in the culture that boys are far superior. Um, You know, the boys are the golden, the the golden child where the, the girls, you literally, you're considered garbage. And so, um, I, you know, had a big, huge argument with my dad over it, of course. And I decided that, you know what, I'm just going to do my thing because I have financially, I have the ability to, <clears throat> because at that time I was, I already was working for about two years uh, for a big, huge corporation where I'm, that's where I met my husband. And when it came to the wedding, we decided just to just go get married in Las Vegas, just down and dirty, a very, very small party that we had. And um, I did not. I did not invite my dad and, you know, my family, they never made anything easy for me. Nothing was ever easy. Everything that, that I wanted, I had to fight tooth and nail for. So when it came to uh, our wedding, I invited everybody. And um, my mom says, you need to go beg your dad for forgiveness and you need to go and beg him to come to your wedding. And I said, I will do no such thing. He is invited if he wishes to come, but I will not go beg him for forgiveness. And um, she says, well, you need to physically go and sweet talk your dad. And I said, I will do no such thing. Um, If he comes to the wedding, I will not kick him out. I at least give him that respect. Well, you know, I did. So I didn't technically, I never went to my dad and said, dad, you're invited to our wedding, right? So my mom uh, approached me and she says, I have decided not to come to your wedding because your dad is not coming to your wedding. 
And I said, you know, mom, I would really like for you to be there. But if this is what you want to do, I will respect your wishes. It will make me very sad not to have my mom there, but I respect your wishes. So then my siblings, my two older sisters said the same thing. We heard that you're not inviting your dad and you didn't ask for forgiveness. And um, because your dad is not going to the wedding, we have decided to not go to your wedding. My brother said the same thing. So three of my four siblings came to me and says, we're not coming to your wedding until you go and beg your dad for forgiveness and you ask him to please come to your wedding. We will not come to your wedding. And mm-hmm. I said to them the same thing I said to my mom. Then um, I went to Fatso and I said, Fatso, you know, I would like for you to come to my wedding, but I understand because no one else in the family is coming. So I understand if you don't want to come. To which Fatso's response was, you know what? Screw everybody, whatever. I'm coming no matter rain or shine. I got your back. I'm coming. And that's why Fatso has always, always, ever since I was six years old, you know, as long as as long as I can remember, um, she's always been my favorite. And partly is because I grew up with her for the first six years of my life in Taiwan. So you said, did you get married? You said that you got married later in life. I got married when I was, gosh, I think I was like 29 when I got married. 29, so it's not, not as late as I thought. And I thought you were, the way it's just the way you're unfolding, unpacking things, it seemed like it was slightly more later. But obviously still, did you have, by getting married at 29, did you have a family yourself? No, um, you know, family was, you know, there are there are some people out there that feel like to complete your life, you need a husband or a wife, you need to have two, two and a half kids, you need to have a dog and a white picket fence. For me, okay, <laughs> that's kind of like, that's like the American dream here, Frazier. that's the American dream. So it's like the Truman Show. <laughs> that's the American dream. So for me, I'm actually quite surprised that I am married because I've been, I've always been super, super independent, super super independent. And for all of the women out there, um, my, my thought has always been the same is that my livelihood, my ability to make money, I have to only depend on myself. Anything outside of that is just a bonus. Right. I do not want to rely on a man for my financial security. I have to be able to create, to know how to create my own financial stability. What if, God forbid, what if the relationship doesn't work out and you depend on your spouse to be your sole provider? And now you have, you don't have a career, you have no job, you, that's where you're going to start panicking. So I've always been, uh, you know, I've always kind of set out, set the foundation for myself that what I make, I'm going to be able to make on my own, regardless of if I have a better half or not. I mean, from there. So tell us about your, when did you, how, after all this, getting the, the, the hassle of then getting married, uh, when did your dad pass away and what was the impact of that? 
Oh, so my dad passed away. You know, I think he passed away two years ago. I honestly can't even remember. Um, right. When he passed away, my mom called. Um, uh, he was actually in a nursing home. And then, uh, you know, he was in a lot of pain. They had given him a lot of um, medication and he was starting to hallucinate. Um, he was kind of on his way out. And my mom had called and she says, you know, I need I, I think you need to come home. Uh, your dad is is about to go. He's about to cross. And, and I said, no, I, I, I'm not interested. Um, he's not part of my life anymore. And, um, and I hung up on her and then, uh, she had called back about a week later and she said, she's now my mom's crying and she says, uh, your dad's about to go. He's, he's not looking good. Um, and, and I beg of you to please come and, and say goodbye to your dad. And I said, well, you know, this person is of uh, no significance to me anymore. And I, you know, at this point, I haven't had a relationship for, with my dad for years. Um, I haven't seen him. I haven't spoken to him. Um, like I said, it's just, you know, when you feel that someone is toxic in your life, regardless of their relationship, even if they're blood, if they are toxic in your life, um, for me, it was very clear night and day to cut that off because I had had enough of it. You know, I have had enough of it for over 40 years. I had to put up with this. Um, so um, when he passed, um, I never went to see him. As a matter of fact, when uh, they had the funeral for him, my family called relentlessly um, asking me to go to the funeral uh, because it is a sign of disrespect for you to not be there for your parents when they pass. Well, right. I never had respect for my dad um, because, you know, I've, I've said this to a, a lot of people and, and this is just my, my thought. You may not agree, but I believe that respect is earned, not given. You have to earn my respect. I'm not just going to give it to you. Um, and so, you know, I just never had respect for my dad and he, uh, you know, they they had a funeral for him and it was very difficult for the family because I wasn't there. And, um, you know, I didn't speak to my siblings for just a, for, for a little while, um, even though they knew um, all the difficulties. Um, I was actually, believe it or not, I uh, believe it or not, I was actually the lucky one out of all five kids because I was the youngest. So a lot of my older siblings, you can imagine the things that my dad forbid me to do. Imagine, you know, I'm like child number five already. Imagine the mm -hmm. first, second, third, fourth, right? So they understood. They understood. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not angry. You know, I don't have any anger towards it. It was just unfortunate. It, and that's all it is. You know, I'm not pissed. I'm not, I'm not mad. I'm not like, wow, this is terrible. It, mm. it, it, it has made me who I am and has made me that much more persistent in life that if I want it, I got to work hard and I got to go and get it myself. What made you, just a slight diversion, what, what made you get into sort of live streaming or platforms like Periscope and, or what made you make that jump into coming on camera knowing that you a lot of people get trolls and you get and you're having to probably block and unblock and whatever and i mean what was the what got, what made you make that choice and what was the reason you went into live streaming well do you frazier do you know the ufc 
so UFC. Yeah, like cage fighting. Yeah, so no, yeah, 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 so do. Okay, yes. so, so this is at probably about the peak of the UFC, and right. um, we had I, I play hockey. So those of you that don't know, I well, I used to play hockey a lot. I don't play hockey as much anymore. Um, but one of our hockey friends was saying, "Hey, are you going to watch the UFC tonight?" And we're like, "On pay per view," and we're like, "Oh no." we'll just wait for the highlights you know we're not going to pay for it and then they said well you could just go on periscope and you could watch it for free and we're like periscope what's that and so we downloaded it and we actually watched a very very crappy version because you know the, the cameraman was all over the place <laughs> but you know we got the gist of the fight and we got to see it and that's how i ended up on social media was through periscope oh. i watched that first ufc fight and and uh you know a week later i'm like well let's check out what what is this periscope what is this live streaming thing what is this and eventually i about you know the first month i didn't really do anything i was just kind of like a, a viewer and you know a commenter and then i uh decided i'm gonna go live and and i you know again my parents are chefs so i cook a lot and i love I love to play with, around with recipes and try new recipes. So like the first three months that I went live, the camera was pointed down at an angle where you only saw the cutting board in my hand. You saw me chopping, you saw me stirring, you saw me washing dishes. All you saw was my hands and preparing these gorgeous meals. And people kept asking, can we, can we meet? Can we meet you? Will you one day turn the camera around so we can meet you? And, uh, you know, man, I was sweating. I was sweating. I was thinking at this point, do I need to just leave social media? Because I don't know if I want to get in front of a camera. I was very nervous. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I had made a lot of friends in those three months and, and they said, you know, please, can we just, you know, meet you and, 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 you know, see what you look like and meet the chef behind these amazing dishes. And I, okay. So I turned the camera around one day and the comment that was, that kind of flooded my whole chat was, oh my God, you're Asian. Right. Okay. Interesting. Oh. To which I went, oh my God, I am. <laughs> I'm kind of a joker, so I'm like, oh my god, I'm Asian, really? And that's what so tell us about your journey in social media. Obviously, by doing that, then you you've finally shown your face. So you've obviously been kind of very proactive in it. Yeah, and so I, I eventually became you know more and more comfortable in front of the camera. And um what I have found was I needed to have a purpose, right? You know, when you when you live stream. Uh, you got to have a purpose. Some people, um, their live streaming is part of their livelihood. They depend on live streaming and, and on the, you know, however else, you know, however they monetize, whether you're on YouTube, on, you know, wh whatever uh, platform that you're on. Um, some people do this professionally and that's all that they do uh, to supplement their income or as a, as their main source of income. For me, it. it live streaming is has nothing to do with monetization i have uh that is not my priority my priority as i have found and i have questioned myself many many times in the uh, i was on periscope uh periscope those of you that don't know is a social it's a multi no sorry i'm sorry let me take that back it is a live streaming app 
um, but it is actually closing down. They're shutting it down on March 31st, um, but that's where I started. And prior to Periscope, I was never on Instagram. I was never on Twitter. I never was into social media. So Periscope technically would be my very first. And um, I had struggled. I, I struggled for about four years on Periscope trying to find my purpose. Why do I live stream? Because if you cannot answer that, then it is just a, a waste of time. You're just filling up your time, whether you're bored or, uh, you know, whether you're just trying to fill in that gap of time that you have. And, and I realized where my purpose was in live streaming and that's to help people. And so my channel is actually focused even over here on HAPS. So Periscope is, like I said, they're closing down. So this is the new uh, app that a lot of us have migrated to. It's called HAPS, H-A-P-P-S. And my purpose really for my live streaming is to connect with people that are going through a tough patch in their life, whether you're going through a divorce, you're going mm -hmm. through loss of a child, loss of a pet, um, you're going through, you know, currently uh, coronavirus, losing a family member to coronavirus, losing friends, um, uh, connecting with people that are just going through um, things, you know, we all go through things at different patches in our lives, you know, the highs and the lows. And I have gotten to know a lot of my viewers and followers and um, they have become really good friends. And I, I listen to their stories and I figure out where I can come in to help them, whether it is to check in with them once a month to do a, um, you know, like a live chat on Instagram, um, just to check in, hey, how are you doing? You know, how's your daughter? You know, how is this? How is that? Um, or, um, or knowing that, you know, maybe their husband had passed away at during a certain time and that time is very difficult for them. So I will send out care packages, you know, and they're not, you know, they're not anything over the top uh, expensive, but they're just the thought that I know that this, uh, you know, next month is going to be a difficult month for you. And I want to let you know that I am thinking of you. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've just, and that's my purpose. And the, the pivotal point for me when I realized that was um, the story that I will never forget. And I, and I wish um, I don't have, I don't remember his username and, and he's, you know, I think he just has gone on and off social media. He's an older mm -hmm. gentleman. Um, I believe he was a U.S. Marine and um, he was talking about his wife. He had married his wife when he was 19 and I believe his wife was 18 at the time. And again, they're older. He was, he was in his eighties. And so I was actually very, very impressed that he uh, was um, as knowledgeable with social media and live streaming as he, as he was at, at you know, I think he was like 80, 81. He was old. Right. And um, he talked about his wife, not all the time, but, from what I understood, um, you know, I read in between the lines really well when he comes in and he makes a little comment, and he's, you know, because that's how it is. I'm, I'm on the camera live streaming. You can see me live, but all of the followers and viewers, um, you don't see them. They're just comments. And mm -hmm. I read between the lines of what he says, you know, for the years that I have known him. And I decided that um, I wanted to send him a care package. 
So I sent it out and, and I said, Hey, um, you know, I don't mean to be creepy or anything, but can I get your home address? <laughs> and I said, I promise I'm not a stalker. I just want to send you something. And I go, it's just something very, very small. And, um, he said, okay, well, only if you promise that I could um, do a, a live unboxing. And I said, sure. So I sent him the box and, um, and it was, it was totally funny because he has never live streamed. He's only mm -hmm. been a viewer. So he didn't even know what buttons to push. So it took probably a good hour, half an hour to an hour to set out, just to teach him how to go live. And then when he went live, he was so funny. He was, got super close to the camera. He's like, it, it, can you see me? Am I live? Am I in the frame? Can you see me? Okay. Am I here? And so I'm like, yes, yes, you're here. Back up. Put the camera down. Back up. And, and he, um, you know, like, like, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is a typical Marine, but he sat there in his pocket. And he just whoopa, whipped out this, this little uh, switchblade. I guess that's what it is. A little switchblade knife. Yeah. The package open. You know, I said, you need to put the phone down because, you know, I get motion sickness. So he put it down and he was facing me just like, you know, like you are at your computer monitor. And he opened the box and and there was a card. I usually put a card on the very top and he he opens a card and he starts to read it. And I can see his body language. Again, this is, you know, a, a gentleman that's a Marine and he was mm -hmm. in the service for a long time, as I understand it. And, um, you know, he's in, in his 80s, so, he, you know, he's a senior citizen, and he, he starts to read this card, and he, he was in a swivel chair, much like mm -hmm. the one that I'm sitting on right now, and he turns around, and it was a low back swivel chair, he turns around, and he just puts his whole, he just um, kind of like slouches, and um, he kind of just fell forward, and he started sobbing. And that's when I knew that what I do makes a difference for people mm. in the world. That and it wasn't, and he didn't even, he didn't mm. even get into what was in the box because what I picked out for him in the box were handmade things. Um, I had even uh, drew the, I, I even drew the, the, um, the Marine, the U S Marine, the little symbol that they have. Mm -hmm with the anchor you know it was you know i did all this art um because again i'm a graphic designer so i designed all yeah. this stuff and i put in you know some like uh local stuff things that you know that we can only find here locally where we live and i put mm -hmm. it in the box and um and and he came he you know eventually composed himself and he turned around and he had tears in his eyes and he kept wiping off and, and he says i'm sorry but um this is a little too much for me and if you don't mind, I would like to take a look at the contents of this box later on today. And I said, absolutely. And, you know, and that was the last time that I heard from him. Um, I've seen him, uh, you know, a few more times in my broadcast, maybe for about another six months. Um, and then he just kind of fell off the radar. So I, I don't know what happened to him. It's a shame. You've recently had somebody pass that you knew um, that you, you've actually done a lot of work. For, you've obviously prepared a lot of these little boxes for in, in remembrance uh, somebody very recently. And I don't know if you want to talk about that. Sure. 
Um, so through social media, I've met a lot of people and there was this particular lady, her name is Jan, uh, Jan Sisson, S-I-S-S-O-N. And um, she has been my friend for about five and a half years over on Periscope. And she has always really been a big sister more than she's been a friend. She's always watched out for me like a big sister. And we recently, uh, two weeks ago, we found out that she passed away. Uh, she had gotten COVID and she was in the ICU for two weeks mm. fighting for her life. She lost her battle to COVID. And, um, you know, I just wanted her family to know how much she was loved by the community because she really was loved. She never uh, really went live. I mean, I think she went live maybe like once or twice, if that, in the five and a half years that I've known her. Mm. And, um, she was more of a follower and she went into everybody's room, everybody's channel. And she said, hi, and she engaged and she was very supportive. The last time that I was in contact with her, I was DMing with her back and forth over on uh, Twitter. And she was, you know, like I said, she's like my big sister and mm -hmm. we we're talking about, you know, cookies and cause she had given me a cookie recipe that she wanted me to try because I have these crazy uh, bake sales where I, I bake for days on end and I sell all these, you know, yummy treats. Um, and, and the reason why I do these bake sales is really to generate money for my pay it forward. Because every, you know, if you look at every flat rate, a large flat rate box, every time a large flat rate box goes out, that box and shipping alone, it's costing me $19. So wow. let's round it up. It's $20. It's $20, $20, $20, $20. I mean, yes, uh, uh, on Saturday, I just got another shipment for 40 more boxes. So when uh, Jan passed away, I wanted her family to know how much she was loved on social media. So I decided to uh, sew masks. I actually am a sewer as a hobby. I enjoy it. I think it's very therapeutic for me. I love fabric. Um, and I have actually been sewing masks for about eight years, like pr way prior to the pandemic, I was already uh, sewing and selling masks. And um, the purpose of the mask that I uh, originally intended it for was the cold allergy and flu season um, okay. because it has help. And, you know, it just so happens that pandemic hit uh, and then, you know, was, you know, selling lots of masks. And so I had the ability to, to make and sell masks. And so I wanted to take this opportunity and pay it forward to, Jan's family, knowing that Jan passed away from COVID. So mm -hmm. um, we made um, 20, 20 masks, 20, sorry, 25 adult masks and five children masks, all in different sizes of mm -hmm. uh, adult, large, adult, extra large, adult, medium to kids ages three to uh, three to 12 ages three to 12, you know, all different sizes of masks. So there's a total of 30 masks. Um, and then, uh, and then I made a card that took me two days to hand make a card. So that was in there. And then, um, I wanted to go beyond that because, you know, I wanted the community to represent. So I reached out to all the social media on all the platforms. And mm -hmm. I asked for all of you who, uh, knew Jan, um, to please submit a prayer for her family. And um, I had a total of 21 prayers that came in. And um, 
all, you know, the process was pretty painless. I had asked everybody to just email, email me their prayer. And then I would lay it out. And, you know, all the, the cards were, uh, the prayer cards that I designed were five by eight. So they're five inches by eight inches and um, printed in full color. And so all of that was wrapped up in one package. And uh, somebody had recommended that maybe I can send five of the prayer cards and send it to Jan's husband. And I said, well, why would we send five when we can send all 21? So I made another card for the husband and then the same set of prayer cards. And mm -hmm. I put that and I that was shipped out last week. That was actually shipped out last was it Thursday or Friday? It was shipped out. I know Friday, few, shipped out last Friday. Yeah, that's good. I also knew a few people that passed the that kind of connected with through Periscope and things. There was a guy who passed. I think connected with him on Facebook. A guy called, I think it was Kirk. His name was Kirk. Uh, it was not Franklin. His name was Kirk. Um, um, and he was on a radio. He did a radio show on. But he was quite. Uh, he was in New York. He passed away. He's got a few people I sort of connected with that passed. It was quite inter it was quite sad, but kind of yeah. It's amazing how you connect with and just watch over the years, and you find out that sadly they've been taken from you uh, or taken. And it's kind of it's quite a bit of a kind of shock when you've kind of talking to somebody on a regular basis, and before you know it, it's, it's not happening anymore. Right. It's I kind of quite quite frightening, you know. Well, Fraser, I think the biggest shock with with Jan was that no one knew she was sick. Right. No one knew she had COVID and that she was sick where, you know, someone, um, you know, there, there were certain individual individuals that passed that we knew on Periscope that mm -hmm. passed, but, but we knew that they were sick. And so, you know, we yeah. were here for that, you know, it was, you know, maybe it was terminal cancer or it was, you know, like stage four pancreatic cancer, whatever it was, mm -hmm. um, you know, you kind of have a little bit of a preparation that they're, you know, they may not make it, but with Jan, nobody knew she was sick. So all of a sudden to hear mm -hmm. that she had passed one day when she had been, um, you know, when she had been a rock for so many people for five and a half years, almost six years, Periscope has been around. It was quite right. a shock to the community. And I just wanted the family to know, um, you know, because, you know, when you do stuff on social media, your family may not know what the heck you're doing. And I just wanted them to exactly. know that, you know, your sister, she, she has, uh, Jan had two other sisters. And I just wanted them to know that she was very well loved by this whole community that you guys didn't even know. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the, the significance of those masks, those 30 masks that were gifted to, to the sister and, and the family for them to, you know, I, I have said that you can do whatever you want. You want to pass this out with your friends. You want to take it to the church and pass it out. You want to take it to, you know, your, your, you know, local woman shelter, the police station, whatever you, you do, you know, however you see fit to pass these out. It is really just to create awareness that, you know, my sister, COVID is real. My sister died from COVID. So please mask up. So let's say uh, we've been kind of chatting for <laughs> nearly two hours, actually, and <laughs> we have certainly had a lot to talk about. Um, and for those of you who have been listening, it's the Ramsey Unleashed Going Beyond Borders podcast. And the main aim of my podcast is to interview people with stories like Ook uh, and basically to inspire people. And it's a, basically she wants to simply help people because she's been in that situation as well. And somebody... Is that one person who provided the money for her to give her that grant to 
to take her to where she is now and it's at that point turning point in her life it's uh, certainly inspired her to basically go on and simply help people in the same way and through her faith as well uh how and obviously how you keep things private so i can't i usually ask for people can connect with you but maybe which is not really the kind of question I, it's so Fraser. I actually am on Instagram and right. Twitter, and it is Ukeberry. It's the U- same name. So you can have a sort of Instagram. We'll keep Instagram because I know one uh, just for the uh, people. Can, and anyway, you can connect with you on Instagram. But anyway, let's. What is your just what is your kind of aims? You eat your part, okay, out with COVID. Looking at where you are now in your life, uh, and what where do you so what kind of goals have you got? You want to try and achieve going forward, or just are you kind of almost happy and content at where you are, or you kind of got other sort of goals you want to tick off the box and reach? Well, in terms of social media, you know, I just kind of do this as a hobby. It, like mm-hmm. I said, this is uh, I do not rely on any of my social media to supplement my income, and I do this as a hobby. Um, uh, in terms of goals, it is just to help people. To to um, you know, I I say that the best the best gifts are the ones that you don't tell anybody. That is between you and the receiver. Um, mm-hmm. Although I do find time to time to. Um, you know, broadcast these particular pay it forward box that I do, because I feel it has a message, you know, it has that someone out there, it resonates with someone that could be going through the same thing, you know, like with this uh, Jan Sisson, that they Mm -hmm. could have lost a family member and to, you know, and to say, you know, we care, we hear you, it is important to mask up. So if there was a message behind it, then I would go ahead and I would live, you know, live stream that particular pay it forward. Um, In terms of a uh, you know, personal life, you know, life is good. You know, I, everything that I have, I have worked very, very hard for it to get to where I am. And I'm very content, um, very happy in where I am in my life. And, you know, I've had my own business for many, many years and, you know, work is one of those things, you know, anytime you, you own your own company, you're always going to get cycles. And, you know, for what I do, and the, the type of clientele that I have, um, uh, summertime is usually a pretty, pretty busy time for me. And this year, um, everything was a little weird just because of the pandemic. And so this year during January, this month, I have been unusually busy. Um, you know, I've stayed up many, many nights um, when I am not live streaming. You know, sometimes I'll actually live stream. And when you think I'm going to bed, um, I'm actually up for another two or maybe even three hours working on a project. So I think I can get it out uh, to the printers in the morning. Um, in terms of personal life, you know, I, I think life is really good. My husband says it best. He kind of jokes about it. Mm. He said to me, he goes, you know what? Your life is pretty good. You really don't have any drama. Yeah. Why? You go on social media to find drama because why are you going on periscope and on haps looking for drama you have no drama but you go online to find drama and i just kind of have to you know lightheartedly kind of chuckle at that because it is it is true you know um yeah. you know when you are on the forefront of 
live streaming, you know, on a pretty much a daily basis, if not, you know, every other day, um, you are in front of a lot of people. And when you are successful in what you do, for example, when, you know, once, once a year, I have my annual Christmas sale and box after box, you know, tons of things that I, and a lot of these are handmade items. They just, you know, they just go flying out the door. Mm. Um, when I have a bake sale and I usually have them multiple times a year, um, I'm always sold out and I bake a lot. And mm. you know, there's always going to be those people that look at you and they don't like that. You know, a lot of, a lot of people out there do not like seeing other people being successful. Um, and you know, I don't got time for, I, I do not have time for that. You know, I just got to mm -hmm. do what I do and uh, what I do well and what I enjoy. And you're always going to have haters. And I have always said to those people that asked me about live streaming is that if you don't have thick skin and you're the type of person that is um, a little on the sensitive side and you can't take criticism or you can't take bullying because there is a lot of bullying. Um, there mm -hmm. is a lot of uh, trolls that will come in and, you know, ask for uh, very silly things. So if you if you can't handle that, I would really uh, tell you to not ever go live um, because it definitely, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I have to have I have learned a lot on my own. And, you know, I, I wish I had like a little um, online mentor to kind of help me learn some things. But, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of things the hard way. Um, but again, uh, I'm a survivor from all the things that my mm -hmm. childhood, you know, all, all the way into adulthood, everything that I wanted, I had to go and, and be a go-getter and, you know, just make it happen for myself. So, you know, I, I want to say I'm pretty resilient that way. Um, sure, you know, certain times, you know, I kind of went, well, you know, that sucks. I'm just going to quit. You know, this is, this is wrong. I mean, yeah. you know, all the great things that I do and then, you know, and then now there's all of this, you know, bullying and all of this, you know, you know, mm -hmm. smack talk and stuff. Let's um, just, well, can I, can you give a final thought to challenge people going forward who've just listened to this? Yes. You know, what I have to say to your life is that, uh, if your life is not going the way that you want it, the the luxury is that you wake up every morning and you get to hit that reset button. Okay, everybody has that. If you wake if you're if today just was not good, you're not where you want to be in your life, your relationship, your job, whatever it is, tomorrow when you wake up in the morning, hit that reset button and say, "You know what? What do I want?" And what do I need to do today to start laying down brick by brick by brick by brick? What it, what do I need to do today to start laying down this foundation of my future of where I want it to be? And if it didn't work out today, wake up tomorrow and hit that reset button again and restart. Go from there. Well, guys, on to those who've been listening, who will be listening, and also who have been watching via the video also on replay uh, on haps.tv but also on podcast Ramsey and Leach going beyond borders but thank you to everyone who may have have contribu contributed to this broadcast and thank you for the kind of the the love heart the kind of super hearts love hearts the super hearts and uh, everything else and the sort of 
the support uh, for Uk and everybody who has been listening to this interview and want to catch the full replay. Um, very challenging story. I'm always un- interested in interviewing people on my podcast who have come from sort of like a rags to riches or kind of gone through, gone through the mill in their life but come out the other end uh, to basically uh, want to inspire people themselves and to want to just give and not and the main thing about in life I've always learned is there's too many people who will want to give things and want the credit it's best to give and then not take the credit and that's I've always learned it's not me it's about helping people and giving the master the credit and that's what it's about is giving the master the credit and that's what I uh, uh, sort of always do and it's, it's not about I don't want the credit for something I'm happy to help and just walk down the road and go on to the next person and that's what's important. It's just not take people who will take the credit for and want to be, yeah, look at me, but no, it's not about that. Go and help people and go and bow your head and just keep going on down the path until you help somebody else. And uh, you will probably find in life you will get provided for in, in bigger ways than you expect. Uh, so to everyone, thank you. Thank you to my guest, Uke. Thank you for the, we have nearly, it's amazing how time flies. <laughs> so as I say, so thank you. It's been great to that. We, online, even though you're, if you've never, a lot of people don't quite agree with social media and don't quite understand uh, social media and maybe, and it can be um, so over overwhelming sometimes. So we just want to say to all the people who will catch the replay and catch uh, I've missed this just to say thank you and uh, we wish you all the best going forward and if you want to be on a, on my podcast happy to interview happy to chat just give me a give me a shout and uh, we'll connect and have a chat but till next time and uh, we'll see you all later and we're, going to be, we're going to do a green room thank you <laughs> okay take easy guys everybody wear your mask there we go wear your mask <laughs> bye